In episode 81, we talked about the not-so-subtle attack on people of the Christian faith. It's a well-concerted effort by the left to smear any evangelical who voted for Donald Trump. They're calling them Christian nationalists. And now the next attack. Label those who adhere to biblical morality in the public square as members of the Christian purist culture. Oh, but it gets much deeper. You see, the left is blaming the Christian purity culture for the massage parlor shootings in Atlanta. It's all in this episode of Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. Thanks for joining me, everyone. I'm Brian Sussman. More of me at briansussman.com. Well, it was 81, episode 81. We're on 83 now. The latest swipe from the cancel culture. Go after your Christian nationalists as they're billing them. Uh, This is the new phrase being used to degrade millions of Trump supporters. Christian nationalist. You're a part of Christian nationalism. Again, it's members of the religious left who shrewdly coined this term in an attempt to smear faithful Christians who are politically conservative and voted for Donald J. Trump. Now, some of these religious people on the left, I don't believe are religious at all. I, in fact, believe that they're serving a master whose name rhymes with, shall we just say, Schmaten. But this is a phony moniker picking up, picking up steam following the grossly misreported mess that occurred at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. It's a coalition of left-leaning church leaders. They've launched this project called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And in the mission statement, they cite Christian nationalism as a persistent threat to both our religious communities and our democracy. So reading from their statement on their website, Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities, distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. Christian nationalism demands Christianity be privileged by the state and implies that to be a good American, one must be a Christian. So these sly activists, which I'm not even going to name names, I did that in episode 81, are seeking to redefine nationalism in a way that implies something sinister about being a conservative Christian who loves his or her country and wants to, are you ready, make America great again. Boy, it's amazing. I've never seen a slogan cause people to go spastic like make America great again does for people on the left. They literally spaz out. Seriously, no conservative follower of Jesus, no politically conservative follower of Jesus I know is arguing that to be a solid American patriot, one must be a Christian. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. A Christian or anyone who loves this nation, who respects the Bill of Rights, is for things like tighter border security, wants our economy to soar, is not ashamed of public displays of biblical morality, who demands integrity from our elected representatives and desires America to be the very, very best she can be. Can I tell you something? That person has nothing to apologize for. 
because a foundation of biblical Christianity was intended by our founders. So I think with that in mind, we need to talk about the separation of church and state for just a moment. And then, then I'll get into the latest. Oh, yes, the latest involving the Atlanta shootings. This is absolutely despicable. So we've heard the phrase separation of church and state. It's one of the best known but least understood phrases in America. Uh, it's really interesting because it's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. But most people, certainly most on the left, swear it is. It expresses the belief that there should be a wall of separation between one's personal faith and any display of that faith in public. Now, as Christians... How do we respond to this? Because the left always is quick to say, separation of church and state. You're a Christian nationalist. Separation of church and state. Do, do we know the history behind the phrase? Do they know the history behind the phrase? Some of you certainly do. Do we know our rights? Do we know our founding fathers' intentions regarding this separation of church and state? I guess we could boil it down quite simply I'll talk about the origination of this in just a moment, but we could boil it down quite simply by saying this. The church should be influencing the government. Is there anything wrong with that? The church, the moral principles of the church, the moral principles found in the Bible should be influencing the government. They should influence society at large as opposed to the government influencing the church. And this is one of the problems I've had with this COVID thing. I will not go to any church that continues to force its members, its participants, its congregation to wear a mask. I, wouldn't go, I would not go to that church. If the rule is we're wearing masks when in fact... The law is, you don't have to. It's kind of up to you, whatever you want to do. I wouldn't go because that's the government influencing the church. A church that I've been attending occasionally is a bit of a drive for me, but it's the Calvary Chapel in San Jose, California. San Jose is about, what, maybe 60 miles south of San Francisco. Mike McClure is the pastor. These people stood in the face of government mandates and said, we're meeting. No matter what, we are meeting. We don't care if other churches are not meeting because of the COVID. We are meeting. And we'll make everybody aware. If you want to wear a mask, fine. If you don't, that's fine too. If you want to socially distance in our auditorium, you can. If you don't, that's fine too. That's the way churches should be operating, in my humble opinion. We should not kowtow to the dictates of the government. Instead, we should be influencing the government government to, rem, to remind the government that they're, they're supposed to keep out of these, these church affairs. So, <laughs> off my high horse, catching my breath, and let's talk about where the phrase separation of church and state originates.
First of all, the concept of separation of church and state actually originates in the Bible. God created three institutions. In Genesis, God established the institution of family, creating a male and female, boy, isn't that politically incorrect, and placing them together in a lifelong union. After the institution of family came the institution of civil government. Civil government was instituted to address our relationship with our fellow human being. And the final institution addressed our relationship with God. And that was the creation of the temple or, nowadays, the church. When God's people, the Israelites, left Egypt... God had them established their own nation. And at that time, God placed Moses, it's all in the Bible, over government and civil affairs, and Aaron over the spiritual affairs, thus separating those two roles and jurisdictions. Neither excluded God from its operation, but each was to be headed and run by a different individual, not the same person. Folks, it's all in the Bible. That's the beautiful thing about this. And it maintained itself in that particular way up until about the year 391 A.D. When Emperor Theodosius combined both church and state. It was the Catholic Church. And for the next 12 centuries... Now, listen, no no rub on anyone who's listening who's Catholic. Because I know there are many wonderful born again, spirit-filled, believe in God, Father, and the Holy Spirit, Catholics out there. But the truth has to be told about the Catholic Church going way back in the day. Because for 12 centuries, the state was in charge of the church. And the state, the government, decided what the official church doctrines would be. And it violently punished violators, violently punished violators who disagreed with those positions. If you ever want to get um, an eyeful, an earful, just read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It details it details uh, the martyrdom of many who stood against the Roman church. So there was the established church and the church, well, Let's just put it this way. There was the state-established church and the church itself becoming the official arm of the state and with it being run by church officials appointed by the government. So in other words, there was this great collaboration between the government and the church. In fact, the government called all the shots for the church and basically gave them a leash. You can only go this far. Now in the 1500s, We finally had the Reformation. And those who followed the Bible, whose eyes had been opened to what the Bible actually said regarding church and government, began to call for return to that biblical separation of church and state, if you will, so that the government would no longer control or prohibit religious activities. So now we fast forward to America, which, you know, it's only the next century. The early colonists who came to America brought this view with them. And in America, they made sure that the government, or the state, if you will, could not control or limit 
their religious activities or their religious beliefs. You see, that was their understanding of the separation of church and state, and it was unique. And their goal upon settling in the northeastern part of what is now the United States of America, their goal in settling in New England, as it was called, was to create a new land whereby they could openly practice their faith and utilize this new land as a springboard to send missionaries around the globe to share the good news of the gospel. That was the plan. That was the plan. Now, the phrase separation of church and state, again, as I mentioned, it's not the Constitution, not the Declaration of Independence. It's not in any of our founding documents. However, it's a really interesting letter. There were some folks from the Danbury Baptist Church, and they wrote to Thomas Jefferson, and they were expressing their concern in this letter that the government might try to regulate their religious activity, their religious expression. And in response, Thomas Jefferson now wrote what is a quite famous letter, and he used the phrase, Jefferson did, the separation of church and state. He wrote that phrase, created that phrase, to reassure the Baptists in Danbury that the First Amendment would prohibit the government from trying to control religious expression. I want to repeat that. It's huge. The First Amendment prohibits the government from trying to control religious expression. In other words, in short, the First Amendment is intended to keep the government out of regulating religion. But at the same time, it does not keep religion out of government or the public square. You see, once again, government is not supposed to influence or regulate in any way, shape, or form religion in this country. However, religion in this country can influence to as large degree as possible government. And we do that with our elected representatives who create laws. So again, you know, People nowadays, they, they talk to anybody, basically, for the most part, right? Ask them, where is separation of church and state found? Well, it's in the Constitution. Well, it's in the Declaration. No, 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 no. But here's what we have in the First Amendment, and this is what Thomas Jefferson was referring to with these Danbury Baptists. The First Amendment of the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech. Oh, my gosh. I mean, where are we today? Freedom of speech is being abridged left, right, and center by everything from what few newspapers are left to all of the electronic mediums television, forever, for, television, and then I was going to say radio, but not a lot of folks listen to radio any longer. And I don't just say that because I'm no longer on the radio, but it was, it was a declining medium 
from the get-go. Can I just tell you something? When Rush Limbaugh came on the scene in, mm, I think it was early 90s, AM radio in particular was dying. That was the big talk in the industry. How is this medium going to survive? Basically, all you have left is baseball, football, occasionally on AM radio, and a bunch of Christian stations. How is it going to last? Rush Limbaugh revived the AM dial. Now that he's gone, we can only hope for the best. And then there's all of the social media, Twitter, Facebook, on and on and on and on. Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, go right on down the line. They will, they will not admit that, but they, they are publishers. They are essentially publishers. And they're squelching free speech by throttling comments, by censoring comments. Again, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of people to peaceably assemble. This was my problem with the COVID. Get the government out of the way. If the church wants to meet, let the church meet. And to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's the First Amendment. Man, oh man, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So with that foundation laid, let's go to the next thing that the left is attempting. And it's smear tactics, especially on Christians in this country. The deadly shootings in Atlanta. And the purity culture. I'm going to be referring to an article I posted, uh, published over at World Net Daily. I think it was published on April 8th. It's up at briansussman.com as well. You can see it there. This has to do with the deadly shootings at the Atlanta massage parlors. By the way, it's also amazing. No one refers to these locations as massage parlors. They're spas, spas. Well, I think there was a little more than spa activity going on at these uh, parlors, okay? No one really wants to talk about that side of what's going on in our culture today. We talk about an impure culture. We are just over... Here, let me just... I'll stop now for just a moment. I had uh, a appliance delivery recently. And the guys doing the appliance delivery were Mexican. And you could tell they were rather new arrivals to this country. And so we were waiting for another load of appliances to come in. And I just had a chance to talk to these guys. One of them didn't speak any English at all. The other guy, he was about 20. His English was actually very good. And I said something that took them by surprise. I said, are you guys immigrants? Now, they didn't know where I was going with this. And I said, it's okay. My family immigrated to the United States as well. I said, what's your story? And the guy who spoke English said, well, we, we came here from Mexico. And I said, it's a pretty darn good country, isn't it? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, it's a great country. And it's amazing. In this country, you can either make something great of yourself or... You can totally F up your life. And he's right. 
in this country, there is so much opportunity. For a hardworking person, there is so much upside to being in the United States of America. However, for those beset by vices, like drinking and drugs and gambling, and go right on down the line to sex addictions, man, you can certainly screw up your life in no time flat. So it's an interesting dynamic here in the United States of America. But let's move on from that, get to this 21-year-old man who was charged with eight counts of murder in connection with the attacks at these uh, parlors. By the way, it was the worst mass killing in the United States in almost two years. Now, despite the fact that seven of the eight people who lost their lives were Asian, the shooter told police that the attacks were not racially motivated. This has been an ongoing soundbite, meme, dialogue being put forward by the media that this is a crime against Asians, when in fact, again, for what it's worth, for what it's worth, the shooter told police it was not racially motivated. Well, what was the motivation? He stated that, quote, he frequently visited those places, the parlors, he frequently visited those places in the past. And he claimed to have a, quote unquote, sexual addiction problem. He said he was striking back at sources of, quote unquote, temptation. In fact, Reuters interviewed a former roommate of this guy who said the shooter spent months in a halfway house, a rehab house for sexual addictions. And this roommate also said, told Reuters, that the shooter had deep remorse and shame for his repeated sin. So he had visited those same par parlors for sex. That's what he did there. I don't know how that goes down in a quote-unquote massage parlor, and quite frankly, I don't need to know. But that's what apparently happens at a lot of these places. Now, it was also reported because the news media, boy, when they want to, they can really dig, can't they? They can ask all the questions, dig into the details. You wish they would have done this. Oh, I don't know. When certain people were president like Mr. Obama, you wish they would have done their work when... Certain things happened within the Trump administration that they said were caused by conspirators. When they said were the result of conspiracy theorists. You certainly wish the media would dig and get into the details of what's going on in the Biden administration currently. But when they want to do their job, man, they could ask a lot of people a lot of questions. So they found out that the shooter had been rebaptized three years ago at a Baptist church that he and his family have been a part of for many years. So they talked to the roommate. Roommate said, well, the guy, had, the guy was a sex addict. They get to the church where the family goes. They find out that family's been a part of the church for many years. This guy had been rebaptized several years ago. His parents are leaders in the church. Now, in light of those confessions, in short order, the French press reported, quote, the shooter's stated beliefs and deadly actions represented a hyper-violent and extreme manifestation of a toxic theology that long corrupted a slice of evangelical Christianity. That's the French press. So in other words, 
this killing, this murder of eight people at these massage parlors represented a hyper-violent and extreme manifestation of a toxic theology, a long, corrupted slice of evangelical Christianity. And several commentators actually began referring to the shooter's actions as a display of white Christian terrorism. Jim Wallace has a website called Sojourners. He's a very far-left guy who claims to be a Christian. And it was his website where I first saw the term used, white Christian terrorist. Now, let's be clear, friends. The New Testament has some distinct instructions on dealing with temptation. One of those states, quote, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Nowhere, 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 nowhere in the Bible are followers of Jesus taught to bring harm to those they perceive as being sources of temptation. Nowhere. Temptation is personal. Temptation is between you and God. And we are called to confess our sins and repent of our sins. If we confess our sins and repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, says the Bible. Friends, the smears that we're seeing towards Christianity are uncalled for. And, and in my opinion, growing, not just my opinion, they are growing. And listen to this. Some of those on the left are now describing those who believe in biblical morality, like the shooter, to be part of a judgmental purity culture. Purity culture, which they say is dangerous to society at large. The purity culture. Oh, purity culture. I'll bet you voted for Donald Trump, too. Oh, purity culture. What are you going to do? Go to a massage parlor, shoot people up? Is that what you believe? The same purity culture that's being blamed for the tragic massage parlor deaths is also being blamed for, well, demands involving the LGBTQ movement and boys dressing as girls to win races in high school, track races, for example. The purity culture is also being blamed for opposition to abortion. The purity culture is also being blamed for the passage of the pending Equal uh, Equality Act in Congress. You know, it's amazing. I'm posting this just a little over a week past Easter. And I'm reminded of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we go back in time. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested by Roman troops. And one of his disciples, Peter, brashly pulls out a sword to defend Jesus. And in the process, as we read the story, he sliced off a man's ear. The Bible says Jesus commanded Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, Jesus is saying, knock it off, Peter. I'm on a mission right now, and the mission includes being sacrificed on a cross for the sins of the world. 
And you don't know this yet, but I'm going to be buried and then I will rise from the dead three days later. Put your sword away. And then Jesus turns and compassionately heals the man's ear. Now, as Christians, folks, we're not called to violence. We're called to witness people healed inside and outside via the almighty power of God. Yes, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, as I mentioned, to bring healing to all, by the way, even those who oppose his will. And yes, there are distinct moral standards in the Bible, some of them quite challenging to uphold. Yet through the power of God's Holy Spirit, I quote Philippians verse, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, we are able to do all things through him who gives us strength. So, let's pray for those terribly impacted by the tragedy in Atlanta. You've got lots of people who have been traumatized by this. May all come to personally witness the power of God's healing virtue. And as for purity, I want you to consider these lovely words from the Apostle Paul. Some people refer to him as St. Paul. He wrote a few books of the Bible. He is a man, by the way, who prior to becoming a follower of Jesus was a rabbi, a very well-known rabbi, and I might add, a very effective persecutor of Christians. So here's the Apostle Paul, former Christian killer, now a follower of Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, who writes this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 8. Hidden Headlines. Faith, family, freedom. Thanks for joining me, everyone. I'm Brian Sussman. By the way, I'm going to invite you to another podcast that I produce. It's called Another Chance. These episodes include interviews with people I know who have had spectacular situations occur in their life, whereby they've been given another chance to live from the God of the Bible. So I hope you'll check that out. That's Brian Sussman's Another Chance Podcast. Thanks for joining me on Hidden Headlines, everyone. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America.